Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news of the past week and beyond from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 5th of August for the listening week that begins the 6th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First, you'll be hearing some current events from the Washington Post, followed by some articles from theroot.com. Then we'll have some things from the New York Times and more. This first, written by Eugene Robinson, posted August 1st, Farewell to two members of Black America's greatest generation. We lost two of my childhood heroes on Sunday, two indomitable members of the generation of Black pioneers who both, in their separate fields, changed the cultural landscape of the nation. Bill Russell was arguably the greatest and certainly the most transformational player and coach in National Basketball Association history, a man whose tremendous physical gifts were overshadowed by his fierce intelligence. Nichelle Nichols, who portrayed Lieutenant Uhuru on the original Star Trek, was a black actress in a non-racialized role who showed that African Americans, too, could quote, boldly go where no man has gone before. Russell, who died at 88, and Nichols, who was 89, both received personal support and encouragement from the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Russell stood prominently at just two inches shy of seven feet tall. That was the only way he could stand at the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And King talked Nichols out of quitting the sci-fi series, telling her simply, you cannot do that. First, consider Russell. He was my father's favorite basketball player, and we would sit together in front of our black and white set and watch as Russell's Boston Celtics won championship after championship, 11 in all, including an incredible eight in a row between 1959 and 1966. Of course, there were other towering black stars in the NBA, among them Russell's great rival, Wilt Chamberlain, but what set Russell apart was that he played more with his brain than with his body. He was a defensive genius, studying opponents' tendencies so he could best neutralize them. He made rebounding into a science, anticipating how the ball would caram off the rim or backboard so he could get there first. My dad and I marveled at how he could block the taller, stronger Chamberlain's shots and not just swap the ball away, but tip it pardon me, purposefully toward a teammate. Even more important to a young black kid growing up in the South was that the Celtics were Russell's team, period. When he was on the floor, he ran the action. And when legendary coach Red Arbach stepped away, 
Russell became both the team's most indispensable player and its head coach, the first African-American coach in a major American sports league. In that dual role, he led the Celtics to two more championships. Russell also won two NCAA championships and an Olympic gold medal. He did not suffer fools gladly. Interviewers of the day described him as prickly, He had infinite patience for the fight for racial justice, but no patience at all for anyone who tried to put him in a pigeonhole. And he was brave. He endured racial taunts, even at home games, and despite his stardom, had trouble buying a house in some areas of Boston because of his race. Intruders once broke into his home while he and his family were away, spray-painting racist epithets on the wall and defecating on his bed. His response was to keep winning. In 2011, President Barack Obama awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now consider Nichols. In her own way, she was every bit as important a pioneer. When Star Trek debuted in 1966, she was not the first black actor to appear on network television, but the role of Uhuru was not a black role. She was just like any other well-trained, supremely competent officer on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Americans had never before seen images of a black woman in that context beamed into their living rooms. In my house... Star Trek was must-see television, not because of Captain Kirk or Mr. Spock, but because of Lieutenant Uhura. Nichols had decided to leave the show after the first season to star in a Broadway play. But before making her departure final, she went to an NAACP banquet where she was told that a special fan wanted to meet her. She told NPR in 2011, I looked across the way, and there was the face of Dr. Martin Luther King smiling at me and walking toward me. When she told King she was quitting Star Trek, he forbade it. For the first time, we are being seen the world over as we should be seen, Nichols said, King told her. She went on. He says, Do you understand that this is the only show that my wife Coretta and I will allow our little children to stay up and watch? I was speechless. Nichols went on to become a longtime goodwill ambassador, pardon me, for the U.S. space program, successfully encouraging minorities and women to become astronauts. The battles we have to fight today seem small compared to the wars Russell and Nichols waged and won. They were part of Black America's greatest generation. We thank them for their courage. This next one, still reading from the Washington Post, was posted on August 4th and written by Anne Brannigan from the political section. She's a long shot for Congress, but is trying to make history anyway. Odessa Kelly, who could be the first openly gay black congresswoman, is running in Tennessee's newly redrawn 7th District. It was the kind of summer afternoon every D.C. resident is familiar with, lazy in the sense that the air isn't inclined to move, 
Even under the whirring fan of a neighborhood bar, sweat pools at the backs of your knees if you sit down long enough. But you wouldn't know that by looking at Odessa Kelly. When Kelly recently stepped into As You Are, a queer bar in southeast D.C., she cut a cool, confident, and very tall figure wearing a white polka dot blazer over a white t-shirt, skinny blue jeans, and white loafers. And crowning her long locks was a massive pair of black headphones from which she'd been playing Kendrick Lamar and Pusha T. Since declaring her candidacy for Tennessee's 7th con Congressional District, the former college basketball player, public servant, activist, and mother of two, has been thinking a lot about how to best present herself. Said Kelly, who is 40, as an openly gay black woman, six foot tall, you know, masculine leaning, I want to make sure I show up well. If elected in November, Kelly would make history on multiple fronts. She would be the first black woman to represent Tennessee and the first openly gay black woman to be elected to Congress ever. Parentheses. This could be true of three other candidates this year, Aisha Mills and Queen Johnson in New York and Kimberly Walker in Florida, according to the LGBTQ political advocacy group Victory Fund. It's the kind of history Kelly says her hometown of Nashville is ready to make. But to get there, Kelly not only has to defeat a well-established Republican incumbent, but also has to win a redrawn district that voting rights advocates have called among the most gerrymandered in the country. It is a battle emblematic of the South's political tensions, liberal urban areas that are quickly growing, diversifying, and gaining political influence versus a powerful conservative infrastructure that has been able to maintain its power, in part, by redrawing electoral maps and increasing voter restrictions. If Kelly is sweating the odds she isn't showing it, her background has only increased her willingness to fight despite the challenges. Running up the hill might be hard, Kelly said of her chances. You just prep to run up the hill harder. Even under the best of circumstances, Kelly would have been an outside shot to win a congressional seat when Kelly announced her candidacy last year, she was slated to represent Tennessee's 5th District, an area that encompasses all of Nashville, which is a Democratic stronghold in the state for nearly 150 years. She had expected to face a tough primary against longtime representative Democrat Jim Cooper. But that was before the Tennessee State Legislature drew a new election map, which was approved this year, it slices the city of Nashville, home to fewer than 700,000 people, into three parts, dividing one of the few Democratic districts in the state into three conservative-leaning ones. Kelly is now the sole Democrat running to represent what has become the 7th Congressional District, which extends from the Kentucky border through the state's center and down to the edge of Alabama. During a midterm election in which, pardon me, in which the Democratic majority in Congress balances on a razor's edge, splitting a solid Democratic district into three Republican seats 
would not only diminish the voting power of Nashville, one of the fastest-growing cities in the country, but also could help shift power back to House Republicans by the end of the year. State Republicans have denied that the new district lines are gerrymandered. Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, Republican, said in January, The recommended maps are fair and legal, disturb no currently serving legislator, and preserve as much as possible current district composition. But Democrats and voting rights advocates have called the redistricting a brazen attempt to dilute black political power in the state. In January, Cooper told the Tennessean, Gerrymandering is an extinction event for the political life of Nashville. Cooper has represented the city, pardon me, the city for nearly 20 years, but after the new map was released, he opted not to run for re-election. Nashville has no representation anymore, said Allison Annull, assistant professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. Instead, the new districts which affect 2.5 million Tennesseans, according to Anol, mean that Nashville's residents must compete for attention and resources with counties that have vastly different populations and interests. Sekou Franklin, a professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University, framed it this way, Future lawmakers don't have to step foot in Nashville to govern. That would be devastating for the entire city, but it would effectively silence black Nashville residents, added Franklin. Republicans could campaign on wedge issues that have appealed to conservative white voters and still, quote, win black communities. Kelly said she won't let that happen. A homegrown activist, Kelly prides herself on her roots in East Nashville, an historically black part of the city, but her 14-year stint as a public servant began with some shady stuff her father pulled on her, said Kelly. She goes on, I'm right out of college waiting for the WNBA to call me so I can go hoop, living off of credit cards, she recalled. On her 23rd birthday, her dad gave her a box wrapped with a big bow, but when she opened it, she found nothing but a pair of scissors. For me to cut up my credit cards she said, and a job application. For Kelly, it was a wake-up call to start the next phase of her life. Her dad had suggestions. She was great with people. Why not work at her local community center? She fell in love with the work at Napier Community Center, said Kelly. She spent time with the neighborhood's senior citizens from whom she learned how to play piano and cutthroat spades. In the afternoons, the center became a hub for the neighborhood's youth. Kelly said, I could have retired doing that job. But after 14 years, two kids, and climbing her way up to management, Kelly found she was still living paycheck to paycheck. She was also witnessing the kind of systemic problems that felt beyond her ability to control as a community center worker, she said, which were entrenched poverty, over-policing, and gun violence. In 2015, Kelly began speaking up, oh, pardon me, start that over. She began working in advocacy, going to community and activist meetings and speaking up about the problems she was seeing. 
She got especially interested in labor issues and co-founded the advocacy coalition Stand Up Nashville in 2016. She has since been credited with a couple of big labor wins, including a Community Benefits Agreement, CBA, that would guarantee the city's new mayor league, pardon me, the city's new major league soccer stadium would come with substantial community investments. Like other liberal candidates, Kelly is campaigning on expanding affordable housing, Medicare for all, LGBTQ rights, and building the kind of green energy infrastructure that advocates say would help reverse climate change. But it's her approach that may make her stand out. Kelly often cusses up a storm, sandwiched with the kind of talk familiar to D.C. policy wonks, procurement policies, labor contracts, infrastructure. She hopes to normalize those kinds of conversations among constituents. She said, A lot of time we have bad politicians because we don't know what to expect from them, so we don't have an accurate measuring stick. She faces substantial challenges outside of Tennessee's electoral maps. She has raised more than $700,000, more than the pre Pardon, yeah, pardon me, more than the preceding Democratic candidates combined. But her Republican opponent, Representative Mark Green, has reportedly raised more than $1.3 million for this election cycle. She also has to do what Green doesn't need to, pull together a broad, multiracial coalition and turn out the vote at high levels. Mobilizing these voters is tough during a midterm election, but Kelly is facing another headwind. Enthusiasm for Democrats seems to have waned nationally and in that state, said Franklin. Kelly said she believes with sustained organizing, Tennessee could follow in Georgia's footsteps in 2020 when a decade of Democratic mobilizing efforts paid off with two Senate seats and a win for President Biden. But Franklin is skeptical. In terms of a unified Democratic infrastructure, the state has a, quote, long way to go before it could catch up with Georgia. Georgia also has among the highest rates of black voters, the cornerstone of the Democratic base in the South. Despite the odds, though, experts say Kelly's campaign is not a fool's errand. In a storied city of in danger of losing its political voice, it's important for marginalized voters to see candidates fighting for them. It's always important to have challengers, to have a race that shows differences in candidates. That's part of what we think makes a democracy a democracy, said Anol of Vanderbilt. She also said Kelly's run could fuel the kind of organizing push needed to help Democrats win back representation in the state. Franklin sees an important symbolic message in Kelly's campaign. As a queer, progressive black woman, Kelly represents a version of the American South that has always been present but overlooked. Even with all the racial terrorism that existed historically in Tennessee, we have the alternative history or the more complicated history of resistance, he added. For her part, Kelly is not only game for the challenge, she said she's confident in her chances. She hopes her teen daughter, who is touring college campuses, will go to Howard University 
not just because it's an historically black college, but also because Kelly wants her close by if she is elected. And she expects to be out on the basketball court, too. Kelly said, I can't wait to get to Congress and dunk on Ted Cruz and any other Republican who thinks they're a baller. And I will take anybody on my team. Congresswoman Waters, I'll take her. I'm taking all the OGs. We're going to go out there and ball on people. Give me the ball. I'm open, Kelly continues. I cannot wait. Still from the Washington Post, but this one was published on July 27th, written by Peter Jameson. Black women who once hated guns are embracing them as violence rises. While research shows that possessing a gun raises the risk of violent death, some black women are desperate for a way to feel safer. Dateline Welcome, Maryland. A 16th week has passed with no arrest in the murder of Patrice Parker's son, another week in which she has struggled through grief for him and fear for herself and her surviving daughters. It wasn't just that the person who had turned a gun on 24-year-old Markel Mora was still at large, but that so many other armed criminals were as well. Shootings were ravaging the nation's capital on track for its highest number of homicides in two decades. In Prince George's County, where Parker lives, carjackings had more than quadrupled since 2019. But there was a place where she felt safe, and that was here, at a remote property amid thick woods, an hour's drive south of her home in District Heights, Maryland. And there was no time the 52-year-old felt safer than when holding a weapon like the one her friend Mark Chopa Manley now handed her, a 9 millimeter pistol similar to those that regularly ring out in neighborhoods experiencing the worst of the region's bloody summer. Manley said, I've got some ammo for you when you're ready. There was a time when Parker never would have been ready. During a long career as a nursing aide, she had cared for countless shooting victims. Like many black women in southeast Washington or just across the D.C. border in Prince George's County, she'd viewed guns for most of her life as the root of the violence that had wrecked countless lives in her community. That changed paradoxically after her son was shot to death in a parking lot not far from her home. Exasperated with the police response and in despair over the sheer number of weapons on the streets, Parker decided there was only one way to protect what remained of her family, and that was to pick up a gun herself. I always felt like you needed to take the guns off the street, but the way things are now... Parker's voice trailed off. I don't feel safe anymore, she said. You can't trust nobody. Across America, black women are taking up arms in unprecedented numbers. Research shows that first-time gun buyers since 2019 have been more likely to be black and more likely to be female than gun purchasers in previous years, a finding that aligns with surveys of gun sellers. Gun sales spiked across all demographic groups during the coronavirus pandemic and remained high throughout the protests that followed the police murder of George Floyd, the attack on the U.S. Capitol, and other events that many saw as signs of a nation in chaos. 
the National Rifle Association and other gun industry lobbyists have long exploited such fears to boost sales of firearms and weaken the laws that restrict their use. But Parker and others like her are part of a new chapter in the long-running story of America's relationships with firearms. Scarred, sometimes literally, by the first-hand consequences of gun violence and disenchanted with decades of urban gun control policies that they regard as largely ineffective, some black women in D.C. and other cities are embracing a long, pardon me, are embracing a view long espoused by Second Amendment activists that only guns will make them safer. It is a development that could upend America's guns rights debate, traditionally seen as pitting largely white, rural, and suburban firearms owners against city residents, many of them black, whose elected leaders have pursued some of the nation's strictest gun control policies. Nearly three in four U.S. gun owners are still white, and while gun ownership has long been common in rural black households, the surge of interest in firearms among urban black women profoundly alarms experts on gun violence, who point to a large body of research demonstrating that gun possession is correlated with a greater, not lesser, risk of violent death. Rates of suicide, the cause of most gun deaths every year, go up when a weapon pardon me up when a weapon is in the house as does the likelihood of accidental death and murder by another household member there is no category of violence where we have evidence to show more firearms increase safety said shani al bugs an assistant professor with the violence prevention research program at the university of california davis yet bugs a black woman who previously worked on community violence interventions in Baltimore acknowledged that a stack of ad- pardon me, academic papers might not be convincing for a woman who regularly hears gunfire on her street and lives in terror for herself or her children. That is especially the case, she noted, in places like Southeast D.C. or District Heights, where trust in police is often as low as violent crime is high. Bugs said, this phenomenon flies in the face of the scientific evidence that we have, but it all sadly, tragically, is a predictable outcome of all of these different factors that we have converging. Those factors had converged for Parker as she stepped to the firing line on a Sunday in July at the Chopa Community, a Southern Maryland gun range and gathering place for black firearms enthusiasts. She held a Ruger PC Charger pistol with an extended magazine. She wore a sleeveless black blouse and a button with the face of her murdered son. Parker took aim and fired about two dozen rounds at a set of steel targets. When she laid the gun down, she was smiling. She said, I feel a little bit better already. For most of America's history, the Second Amendment was one of many constitutional rights withheld from those who weren't white. After the Civil War and emancipation, champions of racial equality encouraged gun ownership among black citizens to protect themselves from violence perpetrated by whites. Those calls were reprised during the civil rights movements of the 
pardon me, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, most famously by the militant leaders of the Black Panther Party. In the 1980s, a seminal early victory for the NRA, the spread of state laws that eased restrictions on concealed carry permits, was also a boon for black gun enthusiasts who had frequently had their permit applications denied by white officials. Yet that trend coincided with another development that dampened enthusiasm for guns in many black communities, skyrocketing levels of violent crime in cities entering the throes of the crack cocaine epidemic. As a child growing up in southeast Washington during that era, Keon Johnson learned to fear the weapons that routinely ended the lives of her neighbors. I wasn't into guns at all, said Johnson, because we were told that guns were bad. Decades later, serving as the Democratic chairwoman of an advisory neighborhood commission in Ward 8, Johnson began to wonder whether her faith in her party's repeated promises of stricter gun control was misplaced. When her husband, originally from South Carolina, began talking about forming a black men's gun club in D.C., she went with him to a concealed carry course. Johnson, a 36-year-old mother of six, discovered that she was a good shot with a semi-automatic handgun. Soon she was hooked. She and her husband, Frenchie Johnson, took additional courses and became NRA-certified instructors the last year. Now they teach classes catering specifically to black people from D.C. and Prince George's out of their home in White Plains, Maryland. One of her first students was Janae Hammett, 37, who had gone to elementary school with Johnson in D.C., and whose children's father was shot to death in 2010. Given that history, Hammett said she was initially on eggshells around guns. But her comfort level increased the more she shot, and eventually she joined Johnson in forming the Second Amendment Sista Society, a club for black women in the Washington region who are interested in guns. Hammett said her transformation was driven fundamentally by desperation. Illegal guns, it seemed, were everywhere. If she couldn't count on anyone else to protect her, why shouldn't she legally own a gun to protect herself? She said, I don't think the government, police, or anybody will ever get a hold of the illegal guns. Philip Smith, founder and president of the National African American Gun Association, said Hammett has plenty of company on the path she has taken to overcome a deep-seated aversion to firearms. More and more African Americans are looking at themselves in the mirror after hearing for years and years that you shouldn't get a gun for any reason and saying, you know what, I'm going to get a gun, said Smith. This is a movement that has really swept the whole country. There is a straightforward logic to this trend. Surveys show that most gun owners buy their weapons for self-protection, and black Americans are more likely than whites to have been threatened with a gun or to know someone who has been shot. The smell of gunpowder mixed with the scent of grilling hamburgers as people sat in lawn chairs, conducting stop-and-go small talk between the sharp reports of AR-15 rifles and in nah, pardon me, nine millimeter pistols, 
Among those present was Joanna Hardy, an Air Force veteran whose nonprofit, Guns Down Friday, works to reduce gun violence and support the families of victims. Hardy had brought with her a group of teen boys from southeast Washington, some of whom, she said, had been shot at the day before. Some have criticized Guns Down Friday for organizing trips to a firing range, she said, but Hardy said those detractors don't understand the likelihood that these boys she works with will pick up a gun one way or the other and the value in teaching them to responsibly handle the weapons. Beyond that, she said, the enjoyment of shooting and the sense of community at the Chopa Range appeal to children whose neighborhoods offer few recreational opportunities. Hardy said, I was working with these kids and I was taking them to program after program after program. Nothing worked. And then I took them here. They itch to be here. Parker likewise found refuge at the gun range shortly after her son was killed in March. The violent death of Morrow, a well-known rapper whose stage name was Gunu, became national news in the music world. Parker said she chose the unconventional ceremony for him in a nightclub, propping his embalmed body in a standing position on stage was to honor her son by placing him above the crowd of mourners. Nobody could look down on him. Parker, numb with grief, reluctantly agreed to visit the gun range after being invited by Manley, who had been a friend of her son. What she found surprised her. It wasn't just the kindness shown to her by Manley and other instructors. The thrill that came from firing a deadly weapon or the fascinating minutia firearms caliber, model, accessories, and ammunition that enthusiasts discuss endlessly on range days. It was a new worldview that she believed offered her a glimmer of hope. Maybe guns weren't just the problem. In the right hands, maybe they were also the solution. As a woman in a dangerous place, she had always feared she would be unable to defend her family. Her son's killers were still out there, but with a gun, Parker felt less vulnerable, especially with the knowledge she had gained at the Chopa community. She said, they took the fear out of me. Parker was waiting for the paperwork to come through on her concealed carry license, and in the meantime she was trying to share her revelation with others. On July 3rd, she brought with her James and Deshonda Johnson, as well as their five-year-old daughter, like Parker, the family lives in District Heights, where a daycare center decided to shut its doors earlier this year because of the gun violence surrounding it. James, 23, has only one eye. The other was shot out during an attack he survived. He said he was deeply rattled by all the gunfire around him at the Chopa community, but that rising carjackings and home invasions in his neighborhood had led him to believe proficiency with firearms was the only way to protect his family. Moving now to theroot.com. This first article was posted on the 5th, written by Angela Johnson. A recruiter's tip. Black people, get in tech now. 
This comes from their business section. There is space for everyone in tech, says Caroline Hill, recruitment manager for Presence Product Group. It's no secret that black workers are underrepresented in almost every industry, but the figures coming out of the tech industry are especially disappointing. As CNBC reported, a recent study revealed that black workers make up just over 7% of the workers in tech. Black women account for less than 2%. But Caroline Hill, recruitment manager at Presence Product Group, thinks now is the time for black workers to consider pursuing careers in tech. According to Monster, the median salary for web developers is $93,000 and $102,000 for software developers. We spoke with Hill about why she thinks this growing industry is the place for us to be, regardless of our education or previous work experience. According to Hill, the tech industry is wide open for African Americans right now, and not just for new college grads. She says, people are leaving all sorts of industries because there is a space for everyone in tech. If you're an introvert, there's something for you. If you're an extrovert, there's something for you. The various technical ecosystems are growing quickly and they need proper representation. But if you're worried that your liberal arts degree won't even get you in the door, Hill says you can relax. Degrees are not a big deal these days, she says. It's really about the type of experience and the portfolio you've built for yourself. Hill encourages tech newcomers to look at certification programs rather than racking up student loan debt for another degree. But she warns people to do their homework before investing time or money, including looking for free or low-cost programs sponsored by the city you live in. Reach out to people you may know in the industry so we can look into the program. There are some big-time fakes out there who charge a lot of money, she says. You do not want to go into debt for a certification program or a boot camp. Although there are many different job titles to pursue in the tech industry, Hill says IT roles in product management, project management, and UX UI design can be a grace pardon me, great place to start. And she adds that industry newcomers should seriously consider starting in support and help desk roles. You will learn so much in a hospital support desk, and then you can move your way up. The trajectory is crazy, she says. Hill, who found her way into tech recruiting by accident, says she's been pleasantly surprised by her own experience in the industry. I've had so many twists and turns in my career. I've taught in the alternative school system. I've worked in sales, and I've waited tables. I've been all over the place but I have found the greatest fulfillment in the tech space. And I am not a tech person, she says. I still like beautiful dresses and I still want to grow up to be Beyonce, she laughs. And for black people who are able to break into tech, Hill advises them to do their part to pay it forward. Now is the time to pivot into tech. There are a lot of companies and organizations that will help you get your foot in the door, but you have to be dedicated, she says. The money and the opportunities are there, and if you get in, pull someone in behind you. Bring the next brother or sister in. 
Next one is written by Stephanie Holland. It was posted on the 5th. Tyler Perry took care of Cicely Tyson for the last 15 years of her life. The director paid the legendary actress $1 million for one day of work on Why Did I Get Married Too? Tyler Perry receives a lot of criticism about his TV series and movies, and honestly, most of it is deserved. However, one thing he always gets right is respect for his elders. Over the years, he's featured our best acting legends in many of his projects and consistently treats them with the dignity they weren't previously given. According to ARP, the magazine, the Oval creator made sure award-winning actress Cicely Tyson was paid well and shown her value when she worked for him. Pardon me, that's when she worked with him. I've never said this publicly, but I took care of Miss Tyson for the last 15 years of her life. She was a proud woman, and the only reason I mention this is because she wrote it in her book, he said. This woman had done so many amazing things, but she wasn't well compensated for it. She made $6,000 for Sounder, you know. I wanted to make sure she knew that there were people who valued her. Miss Tyson appeared in Perry's Diary of a Mad Black Woman, Medea's Family Reunion, and Why Did I Get Married Too, and co-starred with him in Alex Cross. The pair developed a close relationship while working together. So, she did one day of work on my 2007 film, Why Did I Get Married? I paid her a million dollars, Perry continued. I loved working with her, and it makes me feel great that I was in a position to give this incredible woman some security in her latter years. I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of Perry's art, but I do respect his philanthropy and generosity. The Medea actor's commitment to Tyson and decision to not make it public shows just how much he loved her. We've all had that one person in our lives who's inspired us to be the best version of ourselves. If we had the resources of Tyler Perry, wouldn't we all do this for them? If there's one thing we've all learned in the last few years, it's that we can't wait to give people their flowers and tell them how we feel about them. And our third article from The Root, uh, written by Angela Johnson, also posted on the 5th. Chef Omar Tate shines a light on black farmers. The Cultivating Community Dinner Series aims to create more awareness around the challenges faced by blacks in agriculture. Black farmers in this country have decreased over the past 100 years. Stats from McKinsey and Company show that just over 1% of farmers identify as black today, compared with 14% a century ago. And the impact of that loss is affecting the pockets of the black farming community, which now only represents 0.5% of total farm sales in the country. But renowned chef Omar Tate has an innovative idea to support blacks in agriculture. The Cultivating Community Dinner Series is a partnership between Time 100 honoree Chef Omar Tate and Bombay Bramble, 
meant to shine a spotlight on black farmers and educate the public about the challenges they face. Dinners will feature a special tasting menu, including fresh ingredients sourced from local black farmers. Guests can also sip on Chef Tate's signature Bombay Bramble cocktail, called the Brambleberry Sour. The inaugural dinner took place on Oco Farms in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, an urban farm co-founded by Nigerian farmer Yemi Amu and Chef Jonathan Bow. Chef Tate will also host cultivating community pop-up dinners in Atlanta and Charleston. On top of the dinner partnership, Bombay Bramble pledged a $25,000 donation to the Black Farmer Fund, an organization that invests in black agricultural systems in the Northeast. Jaime Keller, brand director of Bombay Gins, North American, thought Chef Tate was the perfect partner for an initiative that supports black farmers. We're honored to partner with Omar Tate to launch our new dinner series, which pays tribute to black farmers across the United States who have made an integral contribution to American cuisine and culture, said Kelly. Chef Omar Tate has worked in some of the hottest restaurants in New York and Philadelphia for the past 10 years. He has also made a name for himself through his innovative honeysuckle projects. Known for seamlessly fusing music, art, food, and community, he hopes his latest project creates more awareness about black farmers and the issues they face. He said there are several factors that inhibit the growth of black farmers throughout the country. The lack of resources is a big one. Another is distribution and supply chain issues. And one that I see personally is that the public is just not aware of their existence. Our partnership with Bombay Bramble is a first step in bringing awareness to an issue that may not have otherwise been drawn to. And he told that to The Root in an exclusive interview. And just a quick mention of his other project um, that was written about their honeysuckle community. It's in the Philadelphia area, and it says on their website, Honeysuckle is about you, our neighbors, our friends, and our family. This dream, pardon me, this dream began with you in mind. Currently, Honeysuckle is developing the framework for Honeysuckle Provisions, our curated community-focused grocery store and cafe. Stay tuned for updates on this project and more from Honeysuckle Projects. And sign up to our newsletter. They are found at honeysucklephl.com slash community. And next, something I archived a while back. This comes from the Denver Post. Denver Black Queer Collective makes space for joy, friendship, healing. The collective has grown to about 400 black queer Coloradans finding friendship and creating the support systems they've always wanted. This is written by Elizabeth Hernandez, and it was posted on June 24th from the Denver Post. Neka Uwudia Bradford's venture into Denver's LGBTQ community often resulted in the 29-year-old being the only black person in the room. Uwudia Bradford said, That's uncomfortable. 
that doesn't feel inclusive. Most queer spaces in Denver are white-centered. Last year, during Pride, the Woodia Bradford heard about a queer cookout exclusively for people of color hosted by the Denver Black Queer Collective. Being around a group of queer black people made Udia Bradford realize she had never been in a space surrounded by people like her, and the safety and joy she felt began healing a wound she didn't realize was aching in the first place. She said, It feels like such a sacred space because I had never had just a big group of black queer peers. Jacob Smith, 25, started the black queer, pardon me, the Denver Black Queer Collective in February of 2021 after searching for a black queer community in Denver and coming up short. Due to the pandemic, the collective started out building community through online events and has since expanded to in-person gatherings to celebrate, to converse, to support and learn. Through word of mouth and a focus on building one-on-one relationships among members, the collective has grown to about 400 Coloradans, finding friendship and creating the support systems they have always wanted. Smith hopes the collective is a reminder that even with marginalized communities like Denver's LGBTQ scene, there is room to diversify and do better by the different kinds of people who make up those spaces. Smith said, We can't have collective power unless we have meaningful relationships. One practice Smith instated to foster those relationships, when someone comes to an event, they commit to a one-on-one meeting with someone else there. Smith pointed to this unique initiative as one of the collective's keys to success. It's one thing to go to pride events and drink and have fun, And I think so many people have been a part of that, but when these racial justice uprisings and pandemic happened, people were looking for spaces to heal and process and care and find that sense of community. So this collective has provided everything and more during these times. Misha Bishop, 25, that might be Misha, said they have cultivated strong relationships through the collective people they can call in the middle of the night if needed. Bishop found the group through Facebook and attended one of their in-person meetings this year, pleased to get away from events marketed for people of color that ended up being predominantly white spaces. Instead, here Bishop found camaraderie. When Bishop's girlfriend had surgery and Bishop was struggling to take care of her, work, and deal with their own chronic pain, Bishop said members of the collective stepped up to take care of the couple, no questions asked. Bishop said, I've made a lot of different connections and also have had conversations that I feel like I haven't been able to have before. Smith's favorite Denver Black Queer Collective event is the ongoing Soulful Conversations. These are sober spaces in which the group picks a monthly theme to discuss such as combating gender roles, consent, or how masculinity shows up in the black community. Sometimes those are hard conversations where people don't agree or they have different opinions or people are vulnerable and express emotions they don't have another safe space to say them in or they learn things about themselves 
said Uwudia Bradford. Uwudia Bradford's favorite events in the collective are the cookouts, which welcome queer people of color, including indigenous, Latino, and Asian people, too. Food is a necessity, but when you enjoy food with loved ones, it elevates the whole thing, said Awudia Bradford. Food, drinks, music, dancing, it's top-notch. It's just fun, and we need fun. The next cookout is scheduled for 6 p.m. on, well, on June 30th, pardon me. It was at Fort Green Bar, featured catered food and a DJ. Visit the Denver Black Queer Collective's meetup page, which lists the organization's calendar of events for more details. Woodia Bradford appreciates that the collective celebrates Black joy and uplifting members of the Black community rather than only focusing on trauma or overcoming adversity. We center joy, but you can also come as you are, and sometimes we're all going through things, and we're supportive of that too said Uwudia Bradford. I believe I have time for a short article from the New York Times. Shortish. Sheila Ryam is named executive editor of the Buffalo News. This is written by Livia Albeck Ripka, and it was posted July 28th. Ms. Ryam, 55, the first black journalist to lead the paper, will take over as its community still reels from one of the deadliest racist massacres in recent American history. A black woman is taking the helm of Buffalo's daily newspaper as the city still grieves the racist supermarket massacre that shocked the city this year. An executive with Gannett Newspapers, Sheila Ryan, was named the executive editor of the Buffalo News. She is the only black journalist and the second woman to hold the position in the paper's 142-year history. The news was purchased in 2020 by Lee Enterprises from its longtime owner, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. I went to college in Buffalo, and I've always considered the city sort of my second home, said Ms. Ryan. Ms. Ryan said that she was excited to work in a newsroom of veterans with a strong reputation for great journalism. Her appointment, effective August 22nd, followed the retirement of Mike Connolly, a veteran journalist who was editor of the news for a decade. It also came months after the May 14th mass shooting at the Topps Friendly Market in the predominantly black neighborhood of East Buffalo, one of the deadliest racist massacres in recent American history. The attack has left the city pardon me, reeling, Looking from afar, I was heartbroken, said Ms. Ryan, adding that the city was still healing. But I'm hopeful that we will be a part of a discussion that helps the community to grow together and grow stronger. In her new role as executive editor, said Ms. Ryan, she planned to continue leading the paper to cover the city in its entirety. We're going to look at everything from food insecurity to public safety to how residents are supporting each other. The news, with a print circulation of about 56,000, is among the largest in the state outside of the New York City area, but like many other medium-sized regional papers, it was ravaged by the pandemic and had to impose pay cuts and furlough staff. Margaret Sullivan, the media columnist for the Washington Post, who was also the news's 
first top female editor before a stint as public editor of the New York Times, described the news as a dominant force that continued to do essential public service and watchdog journalism. She said, I was certainly thrilled to see that Sheila's appointment would make history. It's good to see. Ms. Ryan said she was most looking forward to working with journalists who were passionate about serving their community, about telling great stories. And she said she was excited to be nearer to the Buffalo Bills. I'm a big Bills fan, she said. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. Please tune into all of our offerings. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funding from the Quick Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.